Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Fifty-five years ago, I married Gail. Sixty-seven years ago, I accepted Christ. I believe you have to reaffirm that on a daily basis. And by the way, I'll add one more to that triad. I think you have to keep rediscovering God's call in life. I was taught that some call comes to you often when you're 14 years of age, and it sticks with you for the rest of your life. I don't don't really buy that. At the age of 64, I began to ask God for a fresh call. I asked to to be traded to another club. (laughs) And God gave me a new fresh call, which is, it, it gets me out of bed in the morning. And here I am at 77, and one of the reasons I think life is vital to me today is I've got a new call. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the season finale of Restoring the Soul podcast. It's hard to believe that we've completed 21 episodes. It seems like just yesterday that we released this, but it was August 1st. I'm already looking forward to Season 2, which debuts on February 13th, 2017. Mark your calendars, that's just in time for Valentine's Day. Between now and then, I invite you to do two things. First, please consider reviewing or rating our podcast on iTunes. Just a brief comment or click is more helpful than you know, and it helps get the word out so that more people can access this content. Second, please consider sharing our podcast with friends, colleagues, or on social media. I'd personally appreciate that very much. On the program today, I'm back with the second of a two-part conversation with author, speaker, and Denver Seminary Chancellor Gordon McDonald. Gordon and his wife, Gail, live in Concord, New Hampshire, and have been married over 53 years. He is the author of the best-selling book, Ordering Your Private World, as well as Rebuilding Your Broken World and The Resilient Life. Gordon speaks frequently at conferences for the Willow Creek Association, both in the U.S. and around the world, and privately, he engages with corporate and national leaders as an executive coach. Let's tune in now to part two of our conversation. I think that a lot of Christians misunderstand brokenness. Um, Most frequently, I think people go to Psalm 51, and and David says, a broken and contrite spirit you will not despise. Uh, And we take that sentence, and we think that brokenness means feeling really bad about myself or potentially um, feeling really remorseful. And brokenness is something that we're supposed to become as opposed to something that we are. And as I'm hearing you talk, 
brokenness is the reality of our humanity and the way in which we we live. It's something we're to own and embrace. But what is brokenness? Well, you've just said it better than I could have said it. Um, Brokenness begins with a a vision of what the first two chapters of Genesis said. What's wholeness? And we have some hints in those first two chapters of the first two people that God creates and the wholeness of them as people, a wholeness of their relationship to creation, a wholeness of their relationship to each other. There's great mystery in that final phrase in chapter two, the two were naked and not ashamed. Uh, That's more than just walking around uh, Florida with no clothes on. Um, Those two people could look right to the core of each other's souls. So when you get to chapter 3 and the brokenness theme is introduced, what you're seeing now is no longer two people who can look into each other's souls, but in one sense their view of each other stops at skin level, and they have to deliberately explore to get below the skin, as it were, into the soul. And that takes a lifetime, and I'm not sure we've gotten very far even then. So brokenness is a, is a is a... What it's trying to say is it's a condition of people that's less than whole, in need of repair. And uh, brokenness ought to uh, be the starting point of our spiritual journey every day. That um, I'm asking God to bring me under his repairing grace on a daily basis. It's not just spectacular sins, but it's, it's, it's the condition we're in. And we should not be surprised when that broken condition causes us in extreme moments to express various behaviors and attitudes and moods, which frankly are not Christ-like, which are not godly. And when, when Jesus comes to engage us, he's giving us a picture of wholeness uh, in a world of creation. And he's saying, if you will follow me, slowly this wholeness will come to you. And I guess... This is what some people would say that is the day of Christ someday, when, or when Paul says in the book of Philippians, we shall inherit bodies like unto his own glorious body with the working uh, that he's committed to us. So I, I have great hopes that whether it's returning to the creation design of the first two chapters or it's moving ahead and becoming fully Christ-like, you could argue both ways, that, uh, that my life is in a constant state of repair. The Jew has a a Hebrew phrase, which I won't even try to quote, but the Jew believes that his purpose in life is to repair the world. And I, I, you know, I I embrace that, to repair the world. And in that repairing job is to repair myself uh, as I am influenced by the Holy Spirit. What you're saying massively contradicts the idea that we get saved and we come to Jesus and that everything's okay. It really is uh, a long obedience in the same direction, and transformation takes a long time. As a 77-year-old man, can you give just a couple other comments on how long transformation takes? Well, it takes a lifetime, obviously, because of one of the very first things I said to you. If the issues are changing with every decade, then, um, and, and let me add, by the way, to that, what I said a few moments ago to you. The issues are changing, and My experience is that many times no one told me about the coming issues. Nobody told me at the age of 50 about the questions I'd be facing in my 70s. I couldn't have imagined them. So there are little surprises along the road of life all the way along, which um, we we just have to get ready for. And we we can do a better job of it if we... 
for example, Gail and I really made a point of this in the second half of life, to always acquire intimate relationships with people 15, 20 years down the road further than we were. You and I are sitting right now in a room where the man who was here for 25 years uh, was like a surrogate father to me from the age of five to the day he died. Vernon Grounds. Vernon Grounds. Um, I determined at a very young life that I was going to become as much like him as possible. And uh, so he was more of a father to me than my own father. I love this man. And to, to bury him and to write about him was a great privilege. And now to have his office and to have his title here at Denver Seminary, uh, it, it, it's, it's almost a joke that God has played. Now, back to your original question. I've come to believe, and, and there are some theologians who would knock me over if they heard me say this, but I believe in continuing conversion. Um, I believe that... Uh, and this is not very evangelical in its sound, that yes, there comes a moment when a person makes a choice to follow Jesus. And we like to say, oh, at that moment you became saved. See? And a lot of people can tell you about that moment in our, in our movement. Beyond our movement, people scoff a little bit at that. And it's not, I'm not sure they're wrong every time. But I came to adopt more and more as I've moved through life the notion of continuous conversion, that every day there are new things bubbling up from this inner space, if you please, that I never knew about. So how could I give them to Jesus? How could I give, how could I give my life to Jesus at the age of 14 when I had no idea what life would be like at the age of 42? So my argument has always been a rather practical one, that every day um, one returns to the cross and affirms his conversion. And so I will often say, if I think the group can stomach it, I'll say, would I surprise you if I told you that I accepted Jesus as my Savior this morning? (laughs) And people look at me, and I'll say, yeah, Uh, by the way, I married Gail again this morning. I've been married to Gail for 55 years. But almost every morning, there's a moment where I remarry her, uh, because our relationship to this day continues to be dynamic. I keep learning things about Gail that I never knew about before. And, and, and to the extent that a new thing comes in, I've got to love that. I've got to marry that part of Gail that I never met before. I love that. And, love uh, and, and Gail, has to, Gail, if anything, has to remarry me. And, and when Gail and I have a rough moment, and we don't have many rough moments at all, but if we have a tough moment, Gail will kind of slyly say to me, so are you going to marry me today? And uh, it's just a reminder to us that we can't take this relationship for granted and say, 55 years ago I married Gail, 67 years ago I accepted Christ. You have to, I believe you have to reaffirm that on a daily basis. And by the way, I'll add one more to that triad. I think you have to keep rediscovering God's call in life. I was taught that some call comes to you often when you're 14 years of age and it sticks with you for the rest of your life. I don't, I don't really buy that. At the age of 64, I began to ask God for a fresh call. I asked it to be traded to another club. <laughs> and God gave me a new fresh call, which is, it gets me out of bed in the morning. And here I am at 77. And one of the reasons I think life is vital to me today is I've got a new call in these last few years. I love the call that I'm laboring under. It wouldn't have made much sense to me when I was 30, though. What does that call look like? Uh, it, I'll put it very, very shortly. The, the call is to be a, a, a spiritual father uh, to younger generational men and women. 
And uh, so I get up each morning, and one of my primary questions is, will there be anybody that crosses my path today that I can play the role of father to? And for me, being a father means encouraging people. It means listening to their questions and answering them out of my own personal journey and experience. It means anything that validates the hand of God upon another person. It doesn't mean competing with them, jamming down their throats my story, competing with them. It means stepping out of the way and becoming a Barnabas to their Paul. And uh, that's, a, that's a good position for an old guy, uh, and I'm very, very happy with it. I feel very deliberately, my favorite person in the Bible is, is Barnabas. And if I could in any way remind people of Barnabas, that would make me a very happy man. Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement, right. right. I heard you speak at a conference, or actually I heard the, back then it would have been a cassette, not even a, a digital or CD. What's a cassette? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, right after an 8-track. <laughs> uh, this was the Christian Association of Psychological Studies, so you were, you were speaking to a group of shrinks, uh, mental health professionals, and you made a statement there that's haunted me ever since. You said that the gospel, as it's being preached today, is inadequate to heal broken people. Well, it's inadequate in the sense, first of all, in the way it's presented. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the peak days of Billy Graham, filled stadiums, thousands of people coming forward. I don't think he could do that today. I don't think Billy could have the same kind of ministry as you and I are sitting here because we are now part of a culture that no longer thinks in Christian thought forms, no longer has any sense. You know, you probably would meet more than a few millennials who would say to you, Jesus, who? Uh, who don't know the first thing about the content of the Bible. So too often we evangelicals are preaching a gospel to a generation now that has no idea what you're talking about. And if these words haven't been formed in such a way that they speak into the present situation, they don't grip anybody, they don't engage anybody. How do you preach about the forgiveness of sins to people who don't no longer believe in sin? And millennials don't really, as a group, my characterization, they don't think about sin as anything that's real. They don't feel guilty. When I was a 15-year-old, man, oh, my whole life was chock-a-block full of guilt. (laughs) I could could manufacture things to feel guilty about. People don't feel guilty for the most part any, any longer. So we have to refashion the gospel to fit the times in which we're living. Now, I'm not saying... I have to be very careful how what I just said to you is fully understood to somebody. I am not impugning the gospel. I'm just simply saying the genius of the gospel is that it fits every cultural situation. And the the gospel that's being preached today often doesn't grip people. And, and by the way, even the way we do church, I don't think for most parts people are persuaded any longer toward life change and conversion by listening to some person do a 40-minute monologue up in front. That just doesn't work anymore. People today come to Jesus Christ because they are exposed to a community of Christ's people. And over months, maybe a year or two, they become overwhelmed by what they're seeing in the way of a quality of life and relationship. St. Patrick believed in this. He would take his disciples and, and live adjacent to a pagan village in Ireland. And the, and the pagans would come to trade with the Christians, and they would see the quality of life, the, the honesty, the hard work, the love. They would see that. And little bit by little, they would abandon their pagan village and come to join the Christian village. And as they joined it, and they absorbed that way of life, they finally 
finally came to the day when they're asking the meaning questions. Oh, this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus the Savior. This is about Jesus the Savior on the cross. I get it now. So it's a process that leaves a person to be more and more converted to Christ. And and I'll add to this something you probably weren't thinking about. I don't think that the the archetype of conversion in our time now is the conversion of Paul, which is what I was brought up on. Now, the real archetype of conversion is the conversion of Abraham, mm. who comes out of a totally pagan world, thinking pagan, living pagan, and, and God says to him, just follow after me. I'll let you know when you get to the destination. And so we have these 10 or 12 chapters about Abraham and basically the stories are about how God is pulling this guy out of a pagan mindset and if you please biblicizing him or Christianizing him That's I know it's an Old Testament story but we finally get the um, affirmation of Abraham's genuine conversion on the top of the mountain when he's about to do this awful thing I hate this story where he's about to sacrifice his son And as he raises the knife, heaven shouts out, Stop! Now I know that you fear God. Mm -hmm. So while you and I have grown up in a tradition where we front load the conversion, Oh, you accepted Christ, you're safe. In Abraham's life, we really don't get the affirmation of his total conversion to the end of his life. And then Paul will say in, in places like Romans and Galatians, Abraham is the friend and the father of all who believe. He's the person who gives us a model of saving faith. That's remarkable. It took me years to figure and come to that conclusion. But I'm much more content, and I think the conversion experience of of people now could be far more genuine because it takes time, it takes insight, and and it's, it's braced and abutted by fellowship or the koinonia of Christians who together make this journey and take the new believer along with them. Do you think that that kind of conversion that seems to have so much more substance to it, maybe by definition of the process, that that um, would impact uh, particularly younger people so that there is more soul work going on on the front end? Oh, yeah. Well, and, and now we're back to brokenness. The, the thing that's so endemic in our age now is that everybody's coming out of brokenness. They've lived through brokenness for 20, 25 years, broken relationships, um, the brokenness of, of a licentious life, if I were to use an old classic word, so that, that when they see what the gospel is capable of doing and bringing people together of, in effect, purifying and repairing relationships, they want this. They, they buy into it as adults because they begin to see this is, this is a whole life rather than what I've been, I've been living into. So, yes, I'm much more confident in uh, a more modern style of conversion. I, 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 was, I must tell you, I was very bothered by what I saw of conversion in, in my younger years as we were coming through the end of the Billy Graham era. Billy had a powerful impact. But, but his way of presenting and calling people to Christ did have to a, a certain point a point of termination. And uh, now I'm concerned that we teach our seminary students um, something more of an alternative way of understanding what is the work of God like in, in, in people who are coming up through this culture today. You wrote a book called Rebuilding Your Broken World, oh, yeah. uh, one that I've read multiple times. And you wrote that after a season of what you called your own broken world experience. Mm -hmm. And since we're talking about brokenness, 
Can you talk about what you learned were some of the key ingredients of being restored to wholeness after brokenness? Uh, I know what it's like to completely fail um, and, and to face a moment when you don't think there's any tomorrow. Um, I know what it's like to lose, in effect, uh, what has been your functional identity in life, to be a pastor, a preacher, a writer. I, I, I know what it's like to lose all that. Um, I also know what it's like to have to be surrounded, first of all, by a wife um, who recognized the, the powerful need for mercy in a broken moment like that and gave it instantly. Uh, and that's not to say that it was just easier. She didn't just walk away from this failure. We had to deal with that. And we, um, I'm very thankful that we had the means by which to drop out of public life for two years. And if it had been longer, I guess we would have accepted that. Um, so we went dark for two years, the two of us. We lived up in the woods of New Hampshire. We had a, I mean, I don't want to glorify those moments, but we had a wonderful two years. And we had a privilege that I wish everybody could take at midlife, and that is to ask the questions, if I could rebuild my life at this moment, what would I want to be as a husband, as a father, as a Christian, uh, as a practitioner of faith? Um, I had two years to rethink all that and to celebrate what was good about the first 40 years and then to start putting the pieces together and ask, so now that I've gone through this, what do I want the second half of life to look like? Or as I often ask in men's conferences, um, what kind of an old man do you want to be? And uh, I was 46, 47 when I started dealing with the question, what does the agenda of the second half of life look like? And that's, that's one of the greatest things, uh, searches that I was ever able to do. Uh, a very, very well-known Christian man at that time came to visit Gail and me for a day. And I remember him saying to us that day, Gordon, Gail, you have a powerful question to answer. Um, you can either face the pain that you're in right now and deny it, blame it on other people, run away from it, or you can embrace this pain and squeeze it for everything God has to say to you because there are many things God can only say to pay people through pain. And Gail and I were haunted by that. And we went to our knees and we wept and we said, Lord, um, we're going to embrace the pain. We're not going to fight it. We're not going to deny it. We're going to let it do its thing. But we pray at the other end, we will have learned things and seen things um, that we could have found out in no other way. And uh, Michael, that's exactly what God did. And over those two years, the quietness um, the the reading we did, the people who came to visit with us that, that we just sat and listened to and we asked questions, the surrounding of, of friends, the ability to look into the heart. You know, one of my big discoveries in those years was I really had no special friends. I knew a lot of people, knew a lot of men, functioned with them in all kinds of ways. But that's what it was. It was all about function. There was no man in my life who could have looked me square in the eye in those days and said, Gordon, I see trouble ahead if something doesn't change. And I determined in those days, I'm never going to go another year without some deeply personal male relationships, men who know my heart and allow me to know theirs. 
and I have those. I've had those relationships now for thirty years. I, I can name for you five or six men who really know my heart, and I really know this. It's not a one-way friendship; it's two ways. But those were the things that I learned, uh, particularly in those days. That's where I began to come to the conclusion that life has to be intentional. Not um, not um, reactive, not compulsive, uh, not a life that's in conformity with everything else, but an intentional life. And you have to always be mapping into the future. Where is Jesus taking me? What is he asking of me? What does he want next? And so that curiosity has really become a deep part of my second half of life. And I think it's one of the reasons um, the second half of life for me has been so f- full of blessing. That's that's wonderful to hear. It sounds like, although you may not have said this in the midst of it, that that two years uh, was a real gift. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. It was a real gift. I, my reluctance always in even talking about that that subject is there's always someone out there who's trying to find some fault with what you're saying. Right. And uh, and I I don't want people to say, oh, I, I don't want them hearing. Gordon says, if I go out and do a big sin, there'll be a wonderful result. I mean, I don't want, I, I can just tell you, I never want to relive that day for all the money there is in this world. I don't want to relive the pain, the suffering, the humility, the, the humiliation, the shame, not for a moment, but I wouldn't trade for a moment what came out of it as a, as a result. Will you grace me? Um, I, I think we have enough time to do this. You talked about the theme of your 70s. Would you walk me through, and for the leaders that are going to be listening to this, uh, for the leaders that are going to be listening to this, would you walk me through the decades, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? What are the what are the themes of your life so that other people can be thinking about the <laughs> themes in these different decades? Um, I rehearsed a version of these in the book, The Resilient, A Resilient Life, that I wrote a few years ago. But teenagers are always asking, the, the overarching question of our teen years is, who am I? Am I the product of my parents or am I the product of my peers? There's a breaking away going on in our teen life. So who, who am I? What do I yeah, how, how do I want to end up? The 20s are now the question, what will I do with my life and with whom will I do it? Single or married or whatever. The 30s are the life, are the time when suddenly we are overwhelmed with all the responsibilities and obligations of the longer life. And so the question becomes, how do I manage all the expectations, all the responsibilities, all the obligations which have come upon me. If I'm married, the chances are I'm now a father or mother of children. I've got to be able to pay for a house or a condo or an apartment. I've got car payments. I, I can't dance around from one job to another. I've got to keep an income going. The church wants a piece of me. The job wants a piece of me. The community wants a piece of me. My family wants a piece of me. And that's about 140% of what I am. So you meet a lot of people in their 30s who are really confused and they're trying to figure out how to organize life. Your 40s are the period when you you ask the question, how am I doing? Uh, am I happy and pleased with the goals I set for myself, the person I'm becoming, the marriage I've got, the job I'm doing, or am I disappointed? And, and, and my judgment, this is Gordon speaking, is that there are many more people in their 40s who are disappointed than there are people who are satisfied and delighted. Um, I just, you know, one of my favorite questions, particularly to men, if I get a chance, I'll say, hey, you like your job? Listen carefully, because 60, 70 percent of men will tell you they hate their job. 
Very few people. Few professionals, yeah, but most people hate their jobs. And that's, that really comes about in the 40s. You like the results you're getting for what, the way you're living? Uh, you, you know, is your marriage everything you wanted it to be? So the 40s are how am I doing? The 50s are who is this younger generation that wants to take my place and doesn't give a rip about what I know? <laughs> that's, that's where I am. Yeah, Boy, is okay. that accurate. The 60s are the question, how long can I do the things in life that have defined me? Uh, I've been a pastor for most of my life. For I, all, I, all I can tell you is that pastors begin to reach their point of, of obsoleteness in the perception of people somewhere in their early 60s. They've lived a whole life where every seven days their, their job recycles with the Sunday morning sermon. And one day there's no more preaching. There's no more crowd to applaud. There's no more people asking their opinions. They just become someone who sits on the outer edges of the sanctuary. And little bit by little, no one knows or gives a darn about who, they, who they've been. And so you meet a lot of people who gave their lives to ministry. And um, I don't want to say everybody, but you meet a lot of bitter and angry people who, um, who feel forgotten and unappreciated. The 70s are about loss. How do I deal with loss? Other people, the loss of other people, my own loss. Uh, and the 80s are the question of how much longer do I have to live and how will I die? Um, and what is heaven like? Um, we Christian, lifelong Christians, we use this word heaven a million times. But ask the average person what heaven is, they don't know. They just know it's that that existence out there, uh, but where? And you know, are the promises of God really, really real? Will I fall asleep one day in this bed and awaken in this glorious place where it is? That's a that's a seventy, eighty year old question that's very, very, very real. Father Gordon McDonald. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, talking with me today. Well, thank you, Michael. I've enjoyed the conversation. Me too. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. 